Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. Our broadcast today comes from our most recent MetaStrategy Digital Symposium. The topic is the journey from CIO to COO. And the panelists who spoke about this topic were Chris Drumgool, the Chief Operating Officer of DXC Technology, and Jeff Smith, the Chief Operating Officer of World Fuel Services. Each of them are former Chief Information Officers multiple times over. The gentleman who led the conversation was MetaStrategy's Vice President and East Coast Lead, Alex Krauss, who joins me now. Alex, welcome. Uh, thank you, Peter. Happy to be here and be facilitating another interesting conversation. Well, Alex, let's talk about the journey from Chief Information Officer to Chief Operating Officer. This is still a small group, uh, an exclusive club, certainly, but talk a bit about your own perspectives about uh, that, that rise from CIO to COO. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, this is still a very um, exclusive club, but it's certainly growing in numbers. And I imagine that many members of our audience are very interested uh, in considering that step. So I believe there are a number of reasons why technology executives are so well positioned uh, to take the step to become a operations executive as well. Uh, I think some of uh, that speaks to the importance of digital capabilities, data, and technology more broadly speaking, are all things that are traditionally under the purview of the CIO uh, and things that have become more important in, in most organizations these days. Uh, also, I think uh, it's the unique experiences that most CIOs have that position them well for that uh, transformation. Uh, I think some of that is that they bring not only technological acumen, but also uh, business experience and uh, leadership experience uh, to the table. Interesting overview. Um, I mentioned the two executives already, Chris Drumgool, the COO of DXC Technology, and Jeff Smith, the COO of World Fuel Services. Talk a bit about your perspectives on the two of them. Yes, absolutely. Um, so it's pretty amazing. I think between the two of them, uh, they have more than 50 years of experience uh, under their belt, and uh, that's impressive, even for uh, CIOs. Uh, so Jeff Jeff is the CEO of World Fuel Services, a $20 billion energy commodities and services company based in Florida. Uh, it's 5,000 professionals provide more than 50 energy products to uh, tens of thousands of customers around 200 countries in the world, really. Uh, Jeff was appointed as COO in 2017. He came from IBM. Uh, where, among other things, he led the uh, agile transformation uh, for IBM. Uh, prior to that, he had a CEO role, and he has been in that role uh, for a number of years now. Uh, Chris Drangul is the EVP and Chief Operating Officer of DXC Technology. Uh, DXC Technology is a $20 billion American multinational IT services and consulting company headquartered in Ashburn, Virginia, and has about 130,000 employees and operates in 70 countries. Uh, it was founded in 2017 when HP Enterprise, one of its enterprise services business, and it merged with Computer Science Corporation. Uh, Chris was named EVP and COO in August uh, of last year, uh, reporting directly to DXC's president and CEO. He joined as CIO in March of 2020. Prior to that role, he was the CIO at GE, where he led the company's global technology operations. He has more than 20 years of experience in the digital and information technology industry. I'm very excited to have both of them on the panel here. Well, without further ado, let's get into our conversation. The journey from CIO to COO featuring Chris Drumgool of DXC Technology, Jeff Smith from World Fuel Services with MetaStrategy's own Alex Krauss. Uh, welcome both. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having us. Great. So Jeff, uh, let's maybe start with you. Uh, when we last spoke, you talked that um, as a COO, you really see responsibilities, including things like operationalizing culture and measuring productivity of your teams. And I wonder if you can explain to your colleagues and to the audience what you mean by that and how you go about that. 
Sure. I, I think uh, maybe the first thing is that culture is about the only unique thing any company has. You know, you know, you can generally copy product strategies. It's hard to copy culture. So if you can do it well, you can create a competitive advantage. But operationalizing it, to, to me, is making it tangible. It's making it something you can learn, you can practice, you can get better at it, you can measure it. And generally, the biggest constraint in doing this is not constraint of time and money. It's the constraint of thought. Hmm. So the dream we had was, you know, can I get the innovation and the pace of the best small tech companies, but the scale of a big of a big corporate. Um, and the problem to solve doing that is generally you get big companies, you have big problems that are complicated, hard to communicate, and you have, you know, lots of layers of people in between the people that are managing the work and the people that are doing the work. So the question is, can we take big problems, break them into small problems, distribute them, and multi-process the problem through small, very direct, you know, very talented, you know, small agile squads. Um, and so the thing you have to do is you have to build the talent density up and you have to find a way. I, I have a term called the BMI. It's not a body mass index. It's a bureaucracy mass index. How many leaders to doers? And if you can if you can lower the friction between having a real clear objective, then you can distribute that work you know, across the squads and you can get the pace and the, and the throughput uh, and productivity of the, of the best, um, you know, best tech companies. So to do that, you know, we really came up with a playbook and our playbook was let's break culture into about 30 practices. There's like 10 leadership, 10 collaboration, 10 delivery. And the interesting thing is two thirds of those practices are non-tech related. So as a COO, I manage a lot of back office functions as well as IT. And implementing this culture was just as relevant to my financial operations as it was the IT uh, folks. Um, so we, we created training for that. We had coaches to help people once people were trained. We take measurements every quarter. We have a thing called an agile maturity assessment for every squad where we look at throughput, velocity, cycle time, and whip, which is from the time a feature you know, is designed to the time it's in production. And interestingly, cycle time in the backlog. We found out that we were finding requirements that were there for like two years that are not relevant anymore, but we were still planning to build them. So you, you get the fewest amount of metrics that you need in order to give the signals for people to get better. And the culture is these things are not here to spank you. They're there to help you. And then later on, what we also added was a measurement around what we call a leadership maturity assessment, which are six dimensions of leadership that we think are applicable, whether you're a first line leader or an executive. We didn't want to differentiate and say, well, we've got executive training leaders and we've got middle managers and we've got first line. The reality is outside of scale and complexity, leadership's still the same. So those six metrics were around forming teams, make sure they're diverse, they work well together, distributing work, which is the single biggest complaint employees have of their leaders is that they get too much whip at one time and they can't be productive. Measuring the things that matter, attracting the right people in and retaining them, listening and learning from others, which is probably the second other characteristic that we struggle with. People like to learn from themselves and their close mates, but maybe not people outside of their horizon and then influence and impact. And we add, a, add an NPS onto that. So the, our, in general, our playbook for operationalizing is we, we've got it. Everyone knows it. I can go and ask every, you know, any squad. I said, what's our culture? And they'll say, well, we're good on these eight practices. We're learning on these two. We're not doing these three well um, or collaboration. And it's something that you can scale across all organizations. The only thing that generally difference are in the IT side. You have delivery processes around your continuous delivery and DevOps uh, you know, practices. But the reality is two thirds of your culture is non-tech related. And that's been the, the learning for us.
Excellent. Wonderful. I love that. And also combining, you know, the, the agility that you clearly, uh, you not just uh, uh, preach about practice, uh, but a combination with culture. And then most importantly, the metrics, they go hand in hand. That's, I, I think, great insights. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Chris, since you assumed the uh, COO role, you have emphasized at numerous occasions that the employee experience is also um, at the center of what you think about as the COO and leader in the organization. And uh, Jeff mentioned it already. You also use NPS. Uh, to gauge both employee satisfaction, but also to make cost corrections. Can you explain a little bit how you go about that and uh, what the results are that you're seeing? Yeah, Alex, uh, it's a good question. Thanks. And exactly as Jeff mentioned, he said, as he was just taking you through his kind of culture process there, he talked about listening and learning from others. And we really, you know, as DXC, we're a people business and we have a people first strategy. And that means we should actually really start with what do our people need? And when we step back, and by the way, we felt the same way at GE, and you look at a lot of the traditional metrics that IT people, I am one, use to measure their business, we talk about the user a lot, we talk about times a lot, we talk about uptime reliability, but we very rarely talk about is, is the customer, the user, getting what they fundamentally want and need and think is best in order to kind of make their world better. So we took a, a book, a page right out of the kind of consumer retail book around MPS, because retail lives and dies whether or not a customer decides to come back into that business and spend their money again. So why are we taking the same approach to the way our employees think about everything, IT, internal systems, processes, you name it. And really, when you get into that world, the best metric is a true, honest, and I focus on the word honest, NPS. So the way we use it here is we have a rolling survey that goes out every month so that the data is perpetually flowing in. It's not a point in time uh, exercise. It's a, it's a constant flow of real-time feedback coming from our team that tells us exactly where we should be putting our time, energy, and effort and where things are really creating friction or as we call it in the company, kind of sand in the gears of the business. And how do we go and attack those things? Because listen, frankly, we can all I used to say we can all sit in the corporate office and pontificate about what's happening in the field. Now we can all sit in our virtual uh, bedrooms, but you know, no one is closer to our customers than the folks on the ground dealing with them. And NPS is really our means to go to them and get their feedback on directly what's working because frankly, they know best. And we've had a lot of experiences where something that might've been really high on the priority of an internal team, whether it was IT or you know, say our travel team or our procurement team, when you went to the customer base, meaning our employees, our people, our team, you realize it really wasn't that important to them. So claiming success on it would have been great. Everybody would have patted each other on the back, but we really didn't make the world better for our employees and therefore our customers. And that's why we really angled at NPS because it gives us that real data. And again, we've been surprised, sometimes pleasantly so, around small improvements that you can make that really have a really big impact that probably would have fallen off the radar if we just looked at traditional metrics. So again, it's all part of kind of a people first strategy, trusting that our people know what's best for their customers and then being our job as leaders, which is to sit back, listen and deliver for them, frankly. That's great. No, well, I, I love that. And especially, I think you said it earlier, you know, um, uh, NPS and the cost corrections don't need to be and don't uh, have to be transformational, but they can be, you know, small, as you just said, really impactful and part of the continuous improvement. Uh, that's great. Jeff, you already mentioned that you use uh, NPS as well. Anything in particular that you would like to add to what Chris just uh, explained? 
I think he, I think Chris said it well. I think for us, we do it with our leaders every quarter. Um, mm-hmm. and, and my take and Chris said like monthly, you know, anything you do once a year, you don't do well. So the, the more frequency you can do it, the better. But we just asked two questions, uh, which is, would you recommend your leader to an outside colleague? Would you recommend your squad, your squad to an outside colleague? And we mm-hmm. published the results. We think it's important mm-hmm. that, you know, as leaders, we've always historically been really good at managing the people and, and measuring the people doing the work. We don't want to measure ourselves. So, you know, it's equally as important to give the signals to the leaders because that also makes, you know, you, you endear the people doing the work that, hey, you really care about creating a productive environment for people. So I, I think that's that's what we, we do at every quarter for the leaders. And it's two simple questions. And it's a really good gauge on, you know, are the leaders creating a good environment for the people that work for them? But just to build on Jeff's point there, I think one really key, and I love the, his concept of doing it for the leaders. But one thing that we've seen, I've seen other people, because you say we do MPS and everyone's like, oh, so do we, we do MPS too. But it's that concept of continuous improvement, publishing the results and bringing it in. I I love his comment about if you do it once a year, you might as well do it because we've all seen, oh, we did the survey, we're gonna spend all next year and then hope that the survey question gets better. Well, we all kind of know that doesn't work. It's really about continuous improvement. How do we make small tweaks that just make the work tomorrow a little better than it was today and then when you wake up a few months from now, you'll realize you had transformation without ever calling it that. Yeah, yeah that's great. Good. Now, I'm glad to see that you not only agree, but share the, uh, you know, the positive impacts of that across uh, very different industries, clearly. So as you both made that transition from the senior most technology executive uh, to a uh, business leader with an even broader portfolio and perspective, what were the mindset shifts that you had to undertake or go through? Uh, and Chris, maybe we can, uh, we can start with you here. But I think there's a couple, the couple big ones, you know, financial leadership and financial acumen goes without saying. And I think even if you don't have any aspirations to uh, move beyond the CIO role, that's a very valuable skill, mm-hmm. right? The, w- the way I always talk about financial acumen is, you know, if you think about IT people, we're notorious for speaking in acronyms. And it's almost a kind of a joke in the industry that the IT yeah. people can't be understood. Well, I got news for you. The finance folks are exactly the same way. And if you don't learn to speak each other's language, you're never really going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So understanding you don't need to be able to do regression models on the budget, but you do need to be able to speak and understand the financial acumen. And I think to move, my experience has been to move beyond the CIO role is also to be able to have that financial acumen, not only from the view of an operator, but from the view of an investor in. And how does how do your investors, your owners, whether you're a public or a private company, what are the metrics they care about? What are the financial issues they care about that really help run the business? Because fundamentally, we are all here because we work for our owners. And if you speak and understand the language they speak, you'll be in much better shape. The other one I would say, kind of, and I don't know if it was on the list because it's gone now, uh, come back. It won't be anymore, <laughs> is, um, and I was lucky enough at GE, kind of very robust training, and I was you know, honored enough to be a beneficiary of a lot of that, but kind of core operational training around how your business runs mm-hmm. and understanding it from the view of the operator on the floor of the factory or on the sales floor or on the ship, wherever you may be, depending on your industry is really important. And I, I know, and I was guilty of this too, all CIOs think they know it because they're really close with their business. I would really suggest taking a step back and really knowing it, not through the lens of technology, but through the lens of the operator. Yeah. I think those two things combined put you on very good footing to make the next step. Excellent. Excellent. Good. So, so Jeff, you had the benefit of listening to Chris, but I know you have a, have a very good and well-informed perspective on this as well. So what's the biggest mindset shift for you as you transitioned? 
Well, I, I think like like Chris, I came from the IT side as well. And I think the thing is your natural thing is everyone's different. You know, we're different in tech, you know, finance operations is different. The reality is all groups have an operational component. So I think what Chris said about managing and measuring the right operational metrics, because that's the ticket to play. And then, you, you know, it, every group has projects or programs that they run for new capability. Um, but I think the insight was really our operationalizing culture. When we started defining our 30 practices and figured out the two thirds were non-group related, I mean, leadership practices are leadership practices. You can utilize those in, in any group. Uh, collaboration practices, exactly the same. So we figured out that two thirds of what we needed to learn to become productive were applicable to every group that I have globally. So I think that was a real big learning that I thought things would just be a, a lot different. The reality is my financial operations, they may use robotics to automate processes where my IT groups may use DevOps practices to build new portals and things. But the reality is the how you manage people is incredibly similar. We run the same exact agile maturity assessments, yeah. same exact leadership maturity for, for all organizations. And I would say the other thing I learned and Chris mentioned it a bit on language, is really clear objectives at the top. If you want to eliminate noise and friction from the time you say we need to get this done to getting the work distributed to teams, your objectives have to be clear. And, and we, we really went after this. And so I wanted to make sure that anyone that got in a lift you know, could, could answer the question you know, on what the key objectives were. And just one example for ours was we said we're moving everything to the cloud. Now, what does that mean? And we said, as measured by, and we use the as measured by in our OKR really religiously, all data centers closed because yeah. there's no ambiguity there. People know we have to get our networks out, our telephony out, our applications out. But we did that in, you know, real clear uh, ob objectives that, you know, we're digitizing our business as measured by eliminating all printers. You know, so we we had things like that that made it tangible for people. And I think I didn't do a good enough job that, you know, early in my career you know, that if you leave a bit of ambiguity as it, as it flows down, you know, it gets confused and then you hire more leaders to connect the dots rather than the teams doing the work connecting the dots. Yeah, so true. Well, thank you. And, and I mean, we, 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 we are talking to uh, chief operating officers here, so we can't talk about COOs and two COOs without mentioning the supply chain. I think everybody on this call uh, as consumers and, and uh, business and technologists uh, we experiencing supply chain challenges, and uh, I want you both to talk a little bit uh, about that. Uh, and uh, and Jeff, as a uh, you know energy and commodities company in, with operations in two hundred countries, uh, supply chain is at the heart of what you do. Uh, can you speak a little bit about your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it, it's tough going right now because you, you had a couple of years where demand fell through the floor. You know, where our big you know our big industries are aviation and marine, and then all of a sudden it's come back at a faster pace to then supply it. You had Russia in where, interestingly, we had Russian customers, you know, that that we were supplying in. And at the same time, there's Russian suppliers that supplying us. Um, and, and now neither can pay each other, you know, because of the embargoes. So there's you, you have to figure out, you know, how do I, you know, how I adjust quickly. Now, luckily for us, we have about two thirds of our logistics, our third party. Now, we had digitized a lot of that, and you all of a sudden we had to find alternate sources around the world because, you know, the things have, have changed. Not only is there a shortage if there wasn't disruption, but you add Russia into it, and it's three times as bad. So I think, uh, you know, what we had to do is, is focus and, and get the, the problems that we can solve, the ones we can't, make it easier to find alternative suppliers, get those agreements done, and, and that's where, you know, digital ingestion of data and marketplace and to be able to to move around uh, supply chains uh, has been critical, but you know it, it's difficult. It's a daily battle, 
you know, to manage this. I, I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd be lying and saying if we had it all all solved, but I think we've got good thinking going into it and we know the constraints and we have good technology to facilitate it, but it's, uh, it, it's still tough. Okay, great. Chris, uh, speak a little bit about your uh, operation supply chain experience in the light of uh, geopolitical uncertainties. Yeah, and I'll go quick, Alex. And I, and I think I, I really, when it comes to supply chain, do not envy my friend Jeff because his business is literally around moving, you know, atoms around the world. Um, you know, I think to, to go quick, the Russia-Ukraine situation on top of the global supply chain woes, I think has all taught us that it's a new world, right? So in our case in particular, we had thousands of people in both countries that we had to respond to make sure they were okay, cared for, in safety, at the same time that we're continuing to deliver from our customers. And that's kind of our people supply chain, if you will. And frankly, I, you know, leading up to the conflict, we were preparing for it. But I don't think anyone here in our lifetimes has expected that we would see this again, land war in Europe. And I don't think any of us made our plans for it. But if you look at a retail store, you know, before and after e-commerce, you're going to see two very different things. I thought that was a very good kind of commentary. I think the exact same thing applies to supply chain. And I could tell you that's the way we're thinking about it. I think there's going to be before Russia supply chain thinking, and there's going to be after Russia supply chain thinking. And yeah. that's certainly the way we are thinking about it is how do we diminish single country risk? How do we make sure that we're prepared? And what I would say is when we think about supply chain, it's always been right, cost and quality. Those have always, you know, since the beginning of time, those have been the metrics that you measure by. How do I get the best quality at the lowest cost? And I think what Russia, Ukraine has taught us and this is certainly how we think about it at DXC, is that there's now a third piece of that equation, a third variable. It is now cost, quality, and resiliency. And resiliency has an equal seat at the table with cost and quality, whereas before Excellent. it was kind of a secondary factor. And I think that's going to be the biggest change to industry, both on the, the physical supply chain of atoms, the human supply chain around making sure we all have amazing talent, and frankly, the digital supply chain around, we think about moving bits around the world through networks and through cyber. All three of those things are going to be kind of a pre-Ukraine area and a post-Ukraine passage. I think that's okay. the way we think about it. Chris and Jack, thank you both. And uh, we will certainly continue the conversation. Thank you.